Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Olaine Eaton. Today I'm going to be talking with Justin Martin about his new book, Rebel Souls, Walt Whitman and America's First Bohemians. Hi, Justin. Thanks so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. My pleasure. I wonder if you could just kick things off by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I I am a New York-based biographer. Um, I've done four different biographies, and they've really ranged very, very widely from Alan Greenspan um, to Ralph Nader, to um, Frederick Law Olmsted, to my latest one, which was a group biography of Walt Whitman and a group of scruffy bohemians that hung out in a bar in New York City during the 1850s. And I've really, um, I've sort of followed my bliss, as it were. I've, I've, I've tried different subject matter, just based on things that interested me. For instance, I wrote a book on Frederick Law Olmsted, um, in large part because I live in a neighborhood in New York City called Forest Hills Gardens, which was designed by his son, Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., and I had a friend who became a tour guide in Central Park, and she started um, sort of using me as a guinea pig and taking me on tours. She was learning how to be a tour guide, and at that point, I thought, given the neighborhood I live in, given these tours I'm taking, I thought, I thought maybe, maybe Olmsted would be a good subject to do, and so I've, um, you know, I've often, I've often, um, you know, sort of pressed ahead with with subjects that interested me, just based on that alone, based on sheer interest. Um, and and um, even my, I, I remember the first project I did on Alan Greenspan. What what kind of prompted that was I read an article in, in a magazine in which I had a single sentence that said um, that that Greenspan had once been a professional jazz musician, and a single sentence that said he'd once been a member of Ayn Rand's inner circle. I thought, man, there there have to be big stories. I mean, (laughs) here's the chairman of the Federal Reserve, and, you know, everybody's very attuned to him at this point, and uh, I thought, thought, uh, how there, there must be, you know, if he was once a professional jazz musician, part of Ayn Rand's inner circle this warrants more than two sentences in a magazine article and so that's what kind of set me off on that particular quest <laughs> <laughs> what set you off on this quest with Whitman what set me off on the quest with with Whitman is um, to, to be perfectly honest and to give credit where credit is due um, I was simply chatting with a university professor and he said have you ever heard of fast saloon and I said no and he said it's a really interesting story and and I and and then he sent me an email as a follow up, and said, you know, you really should look into FAFs. Um, and he told me a little bit about it when I when I when I met with him. But but you know, it hadn't. I mean, people are con- I'm, I'm constantly finding ideas. I've got to keep a long, scrolling list on my on my computer of ideas that I come up with. And people are constantly giving me ideas, which I often put on my list if they if they sound interesting. And then I sort of do my due diligence where I work my way through these ideas and almost nothing, of course, ever holds water, which is a common experience I think I certainly know from talking to my fellow biographers. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just the idea sounds great. Someone's already done it. The idea sounds great. There's, you know, one tiny historical document available, <laughs> you know, three paragraphs long, so you're not going to be able to... Um, 
Uh, for my, I, I don't know why I was totally reminded of this, but I recently wanted to do a, I, I thought about doing a book about when the Aztecs were first met by the Spaniards. I thought, oh, wow. man, what a, you know, what a class of civilization. Well, there's <laughs> one rosy letter that Hernan Cortez wrote back to the, um, the Spanish royalty describing that. <laughs> you can't build a, a, build a book about the clash of cultures on one kind of, um, public relations and letter. So, so anyway, I, I, I tend to dismiss all these ideas mm-hmm. that, um, you know, that I come up with myself or ones that I can pass along to me. But in the case of um, the, um, this, this idea fast, I, I really did my due diligence and started looking into it. I was like, my God, this is a great, not only a great story, a great untold story and a great untold story with a wealth of, of documentation and interesting information to draw on. So, so it, 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 I went through the experience, I'm sure that so many biographers do, where I was sort of, you know, I, would, I, would, I was doing my due diligence and I'd, I'd you know, raise certain critical questions to myself and I'd think, well, maybe there's a big hole here that's going to make the book not possible to execute, but then I'd do some research. No, this hole is not only this hole can be filled, it can be filled in an interesting way. So, so after, you know, after a couple months of just really you know, steeping myself in the world of Fast Saloon and America's First Bohemians, I came to the conclusion there's a, a, real, <laughs> a real valid, interesting story here, one that hasn't been told and one that I can, you know, that I can really document. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, I have to say, it's a really interesting way to orient a biography because you're talking about the lives of these different people, but you're talking about them in terms of a place, um, which is just really, really cool way to orient a book, I think, um, and one that I've not come across that much. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about where the saloon was? Because it's a part of New York that a lot of people will know, but they might not know what it was like then. Sure. The, the saloon was in, in the village, which which then and now is a place for kind of, um, you know, for, for a different reason back then in the 1850s. You know, it was sort of out on the outskirts of, of the developed part of Manhattan. And so by virtue of being on the outskirts, um, you know, where, where Manhattan was so concentrated downtown towards the southern tip of the island, um, by virtue of that, um, people who, you know, were marginal in, in some way or another, marginal either income-wise because they were artists or marginal sometimes moral-wise. You know, a, a, young, a young woman who was sort of living fancy-free and wasn't going to, you know, adhere to the, uh, you know, the, the, the curfew of her of a respectable um, boarding house would find a, a less respectable boarding house in, in this what was what has come to be known as the village, um, and so so um, you know so so in those days that was the that was the reason why the village was a place for various types of um, you know sort of fancy free artistic pursuits might be um, um, followed. Um, but it, it sort of even though Manhattan is now it's now literally downtown <laughs> for anyone who knows Manhattan to visit the village, but it, but but. Um, you know, until recent years, probably the rents are too high now. But until re- until recent years, it was it still remained kind of, kind of bohemian enclave. And so, this particular saloon called Fass, where this group of of really America's first bohemians gathered, um, was at 647 Broadway. So that's the intersection of Broadway. It's it's right north of Broadway and Bleecker Street, um, and 647 is it's a building that's actually still there to this day. Um, it's just a, you know, a kind of a modest six-story high, one of those walk-up residential buildings. And it has a very classic New York configuration where the f- there's five floors of apartments, and then the ground level is, is retail, the ground level is commercial. And then the saloon was actually in the basement of the building. So it's a subterranean saloon, and you'd be walking along Broadway, and you'd see the name of the saloon fast, dimly lettered on the wall of the building. 
Um, at that point, at the, at the ground level, the building was actually, maybe at some upper levels too, the building was actually a hotel. Um, but um, what you do is you'd see the word FAFS um, on the wall um, of the building, and the hotel had no relationship with FAFS saloon that was in its basement. There was no, it wasn't like it was, you know, like so many hotels have a bar. That wasn't the case here. Um, there was no, you know, stairway extending from the, uh, you know, from the saloon. Into, or rather from, from the hotel into the saloon. Instead, what you did is you found the name fast, dimly lettered on the wall. Then you found the, a hatchway in the Broadway sidewalk. It was almost, and, and it's almost like opening up the door to a root cellar. And then you'd walk, you'd go down this log steel, um, you know, narrow steel ladder to the floor of the saloon below. And the saloon extended the whole length of the building above. So it's a big, a big, but very amply appointed space. And today, for anybody who's curious, 47 Broadway is now a shoe store, um, <laughs> not a discount shoe store. And um, if one were to go into the basement, it would be just a storage area. And of course, it's a storage area that, you know, there probably been, I mean, it's a shoe store tenant now, but you're talking about 150 years worth of tenants. So in the course of that time, and there must have been dozens of different businesses occupying that space, they've taken that basement that was once a saloon back in the 1850s, and it is simply a completely undistinguished um, basement storage area with, you know, with ugly, you know, fluorescent lighting, and in this case, stacks of, you know, stiletto heels, some in boxes. So <laughs> that's what you'd find there today. <laughs> did you go knock on their door and ask them if you could see it? You know, it's funny. I did, and they, they were, they were horrible to deal with. And they had, oh, no. and, and they had no sense of history or appreciation of history, it appears to be a very kind of, it's a deep discount kind of fly-by-night business. I think they thought I was some kind of auditor or IRS <laughs> official or something. And, and so they were extremely rude to me during my couple of visits. Fortunately, I found one person who would just do me the solid. I mean, nobody would even, I, I said to them, just let me go down to your basement for three minutes and explain the story of Fast Saloon, which fell on, you know, with several different clerks fell mm-hmm. on no, you know, just no interest whatsoever. But I finally reached one person who they, although they would not let me go down the basement, they, they described it to me. They said, they said, you know, it looks like this. And, you know, they wouldn't let me count it, but they said, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's lit this way and there's a shoes pile and the walls are smooth and so forth. The funny thing is, and, and, the, and the kind of serendipitous thing is, there's a deli next door and the deli is a mirror image building, oh. including a mirror image basement. Um, and they were good enough to let me go down, and, and they were much more delighted by this this sort of, uh, even, even though they're not the original space. So when I went down into the deli, they have a, it's much less finished, mm-hmm. um, and it even includes one of the standard one of one of the, the the great features of Fast Saloon was there was a little room with a vaulted ceiling that extended out underneath the Broadway sidewalk, and that little vaulted it was a separate room. That became the place um, where um, the fast bohemians gathered at a long table that seated 30 people. So you had the Spencer had two rooms. You had this separate vaulted room, and then you had a large, um, you know, sort of main room of the saloon. Well, this this little deli actually still has a vaulted room. Um, so at least I was able to go into the deli's basement and get some, even though it wasn't the it was it was next door. I was mm-hmm. able to get flavor for what that space felt like. Although as you might imagine, it was it was piled high with you know with with Dasani water boxes and things. <laughs> but uh, and, and and you know there'd been plenty of renovation there. But at least I could see you know, the original sort of um, masonry work and vaulted ceilings and so mm-hmm. forth, which was 
which was a pleasure to see. These are the indignities of a biographer. You have to go ask strangers to see their basements. <laughs> I'll, tell you a funny, I'll tell you a funny little sort of hopefully um, kind of kicker to all this. Um, thanks to my book, I've actually talked to a large number of people, uh, you know, when I've done speeches for the book and mm-hmm. so forth, who've gone to visit the shoe store hoping to, you know, <laughs> and so, and so um, I feel like there's some poetic revenge that they're having <laughs> need to field questions and requesting on their basement. And there's even some talk right now. It's very cool about a, the National Park Service wants to do a virtual national park in Manhattan. Uh, they're, they're literally in the planning of it right now, which would be a sort of a trail of important sites from gay history. Mm-hmm. Um, and as uh, it, a virtual, what it would be, it would be, it'd be a trail where you sort of walk from things like the Stonewall, um, mm-hmm. the site of the Stonewall riots in, in 1969. There would be placards so a person could visit this virtual national park just by getting out, you know, getting, so going online. And then they would walk from important spot to important spot, most of them in the village, as you might uh, mm-hmm. believe, as you might imagine. And one of the spots that's, that's very much um, under consideration is the site of Fast Saloon. Fast Saloon was a was an early, you might call it a a, a quasi gay bar. Gay people mm-hmm. um, convened there um, because it was a very opening and welcoming atmosphere. Um, and so they're talking about that would be one of the places to have a placard. So I kind of love the idea <laughs> of the shoe store, <laughs> the shoe store having a placard on the front of the from the National Park Service and having to deal with a steady um, stream of people walking by and and uh, saying oh, this is where you know Walt Whitman and and various gay men hung out back in the 1850s. Oh, that's delightful. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we've mentioned the term bohemian, which is one that people now come with to a lot of preconceived notions. But what did it mean to be bohemian then? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll give a brief explanation mm-hmm. of where the term came from and how it kind of got imported to America. This guy named Henry Clapp, I described earlier, this little vaulted room with this long table. What happened was this guy named Henry Clapp, um, he was a temperance lecturer, pretty well known in New England. And he went over to Paris in the late 1840s, in 1849, to attend a three-day World Peace Congress. And he arrived when Bohemia was just in full flower. Um, and so he, 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 he's this temperance lecturer, and he falls off the wagon and falls entirely into Parisian-style Bohemia. And what, what Bohemia was, was in Paris at that time, Paris was, it was kind of like America in the 1960s. It was, going, it was a time of incredible societal tumult. There had just been a failed revolution in Paris. And so all these people, one of, one of the things that contributed to the chaos was these people were wandering into Paris that were foreigners, and they were and they had a you know, sort of brightly dressed guard and so forth. And um, certain Parisians, particularly those who were kind of upper crust and, and of a conservative political bent, they started calling these foreigners bohemians on the notion that they must be coming from this distant, sort of far-off Central European kingdom of Bohemia. They're actually what are called the Romani people. Uh, they'd actually come from um, the Indian subcontinent over a thousand years ago. They were wandering across Europe in a kind of a diaspora during the, during the 1840s. Um, and what they actually were is, you know, they're sometimes called gypsies. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in England, the same, same mistake about where did these people come from gave rise to the term that everybody knows gypsy because people thought they were coming from Egypt. Mm-hmm. But in France, they thought they were coming from, so, so you had some conservative French people who thought Bohemians were coming from, you know, that these were foreigners pouring into the country, kind of threatening the, the, the unstable republic. Um, they're coming in from Bohemia. 
Um, so they start calling them bohemians, and they were real indiscriminate with the term. They, it was almost like a slur, and they aimed it also at, at you know impoverished students, and they also aimed it at kind of scruffy French artists. And the artists, they appropriated the term. They, they literally made it their own. They started calling themselves bohemians, and it became kind of the description for this kind of um, you know, all the things that people would identify as being these, these were, this was sort of, you might call it the first French bohemia, and it had all the attributes that people would identify today as, as being bohemian attributes. These were people who, they valued art above all else, they tended to live in poverty, they were sexually open, um, many of them were settled with substance abuse problems that often came kind of hand in glove with the, the lifestyle. Many of them died young, often from tuberculosis, the cliche, brought on by the chilly garret conditions where they were forced to live because of their poverty. So Henry Clapp, this, this temperance lecturer from America who'd gone to this three-day Paris Peace Congress, Congress and fallen off the wagon, he wound up staying in France for three years, hanging out in cafes, and just absorbing this Parisian-style bohemia. And when he returned to America, he decided not to return to New England, where he'd made a name for himself as a lecturer, but instead to come to New York City and to kind of have an experiment in American bohemianism. And so he went to New York City and one day in 1855, he's walking along Broadway, he saw Fast Saloon, he went into the saloon, and it instantly struck him. Fast was owned by a German man, and so Clapp, this man who, who you know, this lapsed temperance lecture, was instantly struck by the kind of libertine atmosphere of the saloon. And so he decided to make this saloon his spot for this experiment in American bohemianism. And here I should give a quick caveat. There's always been bohemians through the entire existence history of the world. I mean, there've always been people who behaved as bohemians indeed, if not in name. What's interesting about what makes Clapp a, a pioneer is he took a codified lifestyle, a bohemian lifestyle that literally had various attributes and that a group of French people, you know, they, they called themselves bohemians and they were, you know, um, drinking hard and having fast and free, you know, romantic entanglements. He took that lifestyle and imported both the term bohemian and the concept to America and to the saloon fast in the mid-1850s. So you've got a really rowdy crowd here. Could you introduce us to some of your bohemians? Absolutely. You, you, what you had was um, Henry Clapp. Um, he was um, the proprietor, um, Herr Pfaff from Germany. He, he sensed that it was going to be good business to have regulars, as, mm -hmm. as saloon keeps always do. Um, and so um, he, he decided to set Henry Clapp up in a little vaulted room with a long table that seated 30 people. And so that would become the site of this experiment in bohemianism. And some of the regulars at that long table um, were a man named Artemis Ward, who was America's very first stand-up comedian um, and a favorite of Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln just loved Artemis Ward. Uh, you had Fitzhugh Ludlow, who wrote one of the best-selling books of 1857 called The Hashish Eater, about his experiences with, with drug. Um, you had um, one of the notable things about this long table is many of the regulars um, were, were actually women, um, female artists, very formidable female artists, such as Ada Isaacs Lincoln, um, who is a, um, um, an actress um, who, who gained no, notoriety for her role in a play called Mazeppa, in, um, uh, in which she was very scantily clad during, during the play. You had a woman named Ada Clare, who was just a superb, just a sparkling wit, an essayist who wrote very, very revolutionary um, essays, often on, on what would now be called feminist themes during the 1850s. She was a regular at the table. 
And then, of course, the most illustrious person who was, was a regular at that long table was a young Walt Whitman. What was the status of art, outsider artists then? Because I think, as you write, the image we have of that is one for which these people are largely responsible. So what was the reality of it at the time? The reality at the time was, was that you had... Um, being an artist at this point was a very... It tended to be a very genteel profession. And in fact, there was actually uh, sort of a patronage that, that really people are very familiar with, say, the Renaissance, when you really had to, you know, when an artist really had to create artwork that would appeal to, um, you know, a, a powerful merchant prince or what have you. Um, or you go to, you know, various, you know, classical music that was, that was composed in, say, Germany, composed um, at the behest and for various kings and, and royalty. And that was a system that extended in its own way to early America. I mean, basically, um, not, not quite as, you know, things not done on commission for kings, obviously, but work had to be done that was going to pass muster with and meet the approval of wealthy, what tended to be fairly conservative in their taste and values, um, you know, merchants and, and, you know, sort of the burghers of society. And so if you were a painter um, seeking commissions or a writer um, in, in America, or any other type of artist through the first part of the country's existence, if you're going to have a measure of success, chances are you're going to have to create work that was going to be um, appealing to and valued by. So little, there's such a little media environment, you might call it, so little, such a small arts market, that of course there were artists who fell outside the norm. Edgar Allan Poe's a wonderful example. He was a Bohemian artist before the term Bohemian, he was never called a Bohemian in his lifetime. But for the most part, um, if you to be a successful artist, you needed to, um, you know, you needed to cater to to um, you know sort of a, a fairly kind of, for lack of a better term, somewhat milk toast in its taste sometimes clientele, um, and there just wasn't a, 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 a vibrant. Um, and so you have some things happening in the in the 1800s. Um, in the mid-1800s, where you have much, you start to have a lot, um, it becomes a lot easier to mass-produce, say, printing. Um, it, there become a lot more publications out there. It starts to be impossible for there to be a lot more sort of um, voices outside the norm uh, in books and in, in publications and so forth. And you also have cities like New York City start to, start to ascend culturally from the standpoint that um, they start to become, uh, New York City, of course, is a kind of a place that people can exist in a kind of veil of an anonymity. And so you have people that are that have very different views and values that are putting on plays that are, you know, that are alternative plays as opposed to, you know, just doing the, the, the classic Shakespeare repertoire and so forth. So you start to have in the 1850s, I mean, the timing is perfect. Flap returns from Paris um, where he'd been exposed to this kind of chaotic society that included Bohemianism. He returns to America where a couple of things are happening. You've got a, a broadening media where there's more opportunity for alternative viewpoints to be expressed in, in, a, in, a, in a welter of new publications, new alternative newspapers and things. You also have a very chaotic society where the country is hurling towards disunion on the eve of the Civil War. There's a lot of chaos in the country having to do with the tensions between North and South and the issue of abolitionism perfect environment to handpick a group of artists, Whitman and the others I mentioned, who represent kind of an alternative views and values, 
gather them together, gather them under this convenient rubric of Bohemians. They call themselves Bohemians. Um, you know, it's a very kind of um, you know sort of self self-conscious movement, and they produce art that, that you know, is, is rebellious and provocative and, and, um, and, you know, controversial. And they're really among the first, they, uh, of course, they're, they're, again, there are individual examples like Edgar Allan Poe, but they represent sort of a movement that really started increasing, um, you know, sort of the visibility and, and, you know, sort of the societal value of having, you know, rebel artists, which is a, which is a, a type of artist that, you know, that's very much a part of America today. People who are, you know, people look to artists today to, to, to um, you know, to, to certainly to, um, in some ways, there, there are many, you know, sort of middle of the road artists, but there are also, you know, people look to art as, a, as, as, you know, for, for provocation, to ask questions. This is mm-hmm. kind of enduring American value. Um, so this is going to seem probably to be going off track, but it's going to come back, I think. Um, so you've got some fabulous details here, in particular, which I already mentioned to you. Um, I was intrigued by your descriptions of voices. There was, I think there was how Walt Whitman said the word poems. Um, and there's, and Henry Clapp has a heel snapping on a glass voice, which I thought was so, so interesting because you don't often get descriptions of sounds in biography. You don't get a sense of how people sounded. Also, the detail of how Whitman drank lager in one room and rum in another. I thought that was amazing. Um, but I was curious since, because I'm writing in the 20th of the 20th century, and you've written books of people in, in the 20th century and now the 19th as well. I was just curious, as a biographer, what are the challenges of writing of people from further in the past? That seems really obvious, but I'm guessing, <laughs> I'm guessing you've got some insight into this. Um, how is it different writing from different time sure. periods? Sure, it's, it's each thing. I would have told you I was so thrilled after chasing live people when I got <laughs> right about Frederick Law Olmsted. I was like, thank God he's dead. He cannot run from me. I mean, you know, the, the, the level of what I would call, you know, I, I was an unpaid psychotherapist and a diplomat in order to land on um, the people that I had to ultimately, mm-hmm. and it, it felt like an extra, I'm sure many biographers felt this way. I thought, I thought part of the reason I went into writing was because, you know, um, so that I can be antisocial and sit in a room and write, and I'm having to do some, some you know, some Vatican level of <laughs> diplomacy here, trying to, you know, get Alan Greenspan to talk to me. I'm trying to, you know, and Alan Greenspan, of course, you know, um, if, you, if you, you know, when I did that, that was my first biography, um, you know, it's also important to get his friends Donald Rumsfeld and Henry Kissinger, who he was once business partners with, the level, I mean, it was exhausting. I mean, Henry Kissinger, you know, his secretary would get back and say, contact us again in six weeks and we'll consider your, you know, it's just exhausting. So, <laughs> oh, Olmsted, he's dead. He cannot run. Um, that was my thought. Mm-hmm. Um, guess what? Yeah. What, what, what a, you know. <laughs> they can still <laughs> run. Like, Exactly. The way he runs is just uh, the way he runs, and the way any historical figure runs mm-hmm. is is you know um, the information is widely dispersed. It's hard to find. Then maybe the most maddening thing: there's a hole or a gap. At least if there was a gap with with you know one of my earlier figures like mm-hmm. Major Greenspan, possibly they would answer the question. Although they were very um, jealously guarding of their time, but at least I could maybe talk to a colleague or somebody who was a close observer and have them help me to fill in, particularly because these were very public people. So if I had a, 
other than something very intimate and personal, if there was a gap in the record, as it were, I could find a colleague of Nader's and, and say, you know, here's, a, here's something I just understand. What was he thinking at this point? And, 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 or, you know, why did he do this? And I could at least get some speculation, and that, you know, some, some convincing speculation that I could use location. So Olmstead... There's a hole or a gap you just have to figure out. Um, you know, you have to figure out what you can find. Um, and and the other thing I guess I would say uh, about historical figures and both Whitman and Olmsted, the, the two subjects I chose, mm-hmm. are uh, not not necessarily historical figures, but figures that are in the past and are are comfortably long dead. Well, in many in many cases, and Olmsted certainly falls into this category in particular. The amount of the trail he left behind, even though there were gaps that, that posed the challenge I just described, the trail that he left behind of published work, of projects he was involved with, is so massive that it became its own, um, you know, sort of exhausting. I mean, just, I mean, you're talking about a man who did, you know, a huge number of public parks and the grounds of universities and the capital. And that was only one of his careers besides being a really formidable working journalist for one of the first iterations of the New York Times, being heading up a really important Civil War medical outfit called the United States Sanitary Commission. The amount of documentation that he produced, coupled with the amount of documentation that just existed from contemporaneous, you know, from letters, from newspaper articles from the time, made this its own <laughs> its own challenge. So, mm-hmm. so I got I got my wish of not always having to, you know, I didn't have I didn't have to do that um, you know, incredible level of diplomacy and patiently write letter after letter to, to you know to rein in the Henry Kissinger and finally get into <laughs> speak to me. Instead, I just got to spend hours and hours and hours, you know, rifling around, yeah, by myself, like I always dreamed through archives, but it was certainly, uh, it was certainly exhausting and challenging in its, in its own unique way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm curious also about writing about Whitman, who's really a figure of myth. And I'm always so intrigued whenever I read his thoughts about running into, um, Abraham Lincoln on the street, how suddenly Lincoln doesn't seem so mythical. He seems almost real. And it was interesting to see Whitman in the context that you'd put him in the saloon. Yeah, Whitman. That was sort of humanizing. Yeah, one one of the things I was really drawn to with Whitman, and what really may be the essential reason why I decided to take on this particular project, was um, it was an opportunity to do a revisionist version of Whitman and to mm-hmm. literally change his center of gravity of his life. That's, that's why I was drawn to the project. Um, there, there's a, and during an image of Whitman that's sometimes called the good, great poet, mm-hmm. and that's oldest, and something that people are very familiar with because there's a lot of iconography. The late 19, in the late 19th century, when photography was, was you know, starting to take off as a medium, Whitman was a very, very photographed figure. Um, and so you have a lot of pictures of a 55- and 60-year-old, he was kind of prematurely gray, so he's a 55- or 60-year-old, what looks to be a very old man with long, shaggy beard and twinkling blue eyes. That's become the iconographic figure of Whitman. Coupled with that, there tends to be, because he's a poet, he tends to have been the, the sort of the province of academia. And I think a lot of university professors like the idea of a kind of a rarefied, elevated figure who's kind of up there in the ether. You know, he's written timeless poetry, but he didn't eat. 
Um, and he didn't, you know, in life, he didn't need to eat or have any um, untoward feelings or sexual desires or any of that. And if he expressed anything like that in his poem, it was, in his poetry, it was, you know, based on a kind of Greek ideal, you know, it wasn't, mm-hmm. he wasn't a living, breathing, you know, flesh and blood person. The reason I was wrong with this project is because the Whitman who hung out at Fast Saloon, a man in his 30s, was an insecure, not yet established artist. Nothing was predetermined about all he was writing groundbreaking poetry. Nothing was predetermined. It wasn't predetermined that he was going to be successful mm-hmm. or famous, let alone immortal. For him, for by the late 19th century, he knew that he at least was, was you know, a, a grand figure in American society. In the, back in the 1850s, when he was hanging out fast, he thought he might, you know, have to get a job doing something very different outside of poetry or even writing just to pay the bills. He was a very insecure artist um, who thought that he might um, be consigned to, to complete anonymity. I felt like that's a much more real, relatable human Whitman. Furthermore, um, I thought, as I said, sort of changing the center of gravity from having Whitman understood as a kind of um, predetermined um, famous person who was an awesome poet to, to a, a more insecure, um, you know, questioning person. I thought that was an important change of gravity. Beyond that, um, a really important consideration and one that's often overlooked in these, um, particularly in academic biographies of Whitman, was he was a gay man. I thought, I thought, I thought a new, um, I thought I thought a modern audience would be very comfortable and find it very relatable to read. I mean, here's one of America's greatest poets. He was just obviously, if you read his poetry and know anything about him, he was so obviously a gay man, yet this tends to be treated, um, you know, maybe consigned to, you know, in many academic biographies, glossed over entirely, or else, you know, there's a few paragraphs of kind of harumphing in which they say, oh, you know, it's difficult because he was, um, because his orientation is difficult to determine and because, you know, in the 19th century the term gay didn't yet exist, we can't really say with certainty. Any, uh, well, you can say with certainty. It's, it's so very, I'm not a surprise. I mean, why would it be surprising that a poet would be gay? I mean, why, why would that be a surprise? And so, and so um, here's an opportunity to visit a young questioning Whitman and also visit really to view him as a real flesh-and-blood person who had appetites, who was gay, um, who, who that was an essential part of his identity as a person and as an artist, and, of course, Fass, a bohemian bar where half of the bar was just a, a sort of a, a um, you know, an open room for all different kinds of people, and the other half of the bar was this kind of curated space with this long table full of various artists. Whitman, there's a reason why Walt Whitman went to fast almost every single night. He's there almost every single night from 1858 to 1862. He lived in Brooklyn, so it's a six-mile round trip in 19th century advances. There's a reason he was there. The reason he was there is because as a gay poet, half the time he spent in that little vaulted room getting inspiration and, and getting to know fellow artists who inspired him and put him on. The other half the time he was in the main room of the saloon, meeting his fellow gay men. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a perfect, I mean, fast saloon. So, so for all those reasons, I, I really was drawn to I, I felt like there was something that, that a modern reader would appreciate about instead of having this kind of um, 
you know, this kind of set and amber figure of Whitman, to have a real live flesh and blood poet, um, I, th- I thought people would would appreciate that poet uh, would appreciate that perspective um, as, as as modern readers. Absolutely, it's wonderful. Um, what was your favorite story that you uncovered? I, you know, it's funny. I I, I sort of I, I maybe violated a, a, a biographer's code type of thing, and that I, I don't think we have a code. Fellow, <laughs> I fell in love with a lot of mm-hmm. the figures in the book. I'd have to say it, it's no surprise that the figure I most um, just just uh, felt is an is Whitman. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I'll, I'll tell you about another one. But Whitman, you know, just because he's such a grand figure, and I think the thing that really warmed me to him particularly is not only was he in just a, you know, once-in-a-century talented poet, but he also had, he was a kind of a moral giant. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, with the Civil War breaking out, he didn't want to participate in an armed conflict, yet he wanted to be, he wanted to. He didn't want to participate as a soldier. In fact, one of his friends said this wonderful quotation, which I used in the book. He said, "Can you picture anything more incongruous than Walt Whitman killing somebody?" And when I thought about that, that's can you possibly picture him, you know, raising a gun? But the Civil War was this big moral cataclysm that a lot of people participated in, obviously as soldiers and, and in a noble fashion, but that wasn't Whitman's character. But he found a way, a very useful way to participate. He went down to Washington during the Civil War, and he became a sort of freelance nurse, um, tending to the wounded soldiers. And so Whitman, uh, Whitman was my favorite figure in the book, just from the standpoint that he's the most talented as an artist, and he's also the most, um, the most he's a moral giant, as I said. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's for that reason that I wanted him to be kind of the anchor of the book, as it were. But as I said, I, I made the bio, uh, you know, a mistake of the biographer's code of really kind of falling in love with some of these figures. They're, they're kind of heartrending figures yeah, in many yeah. of their cases because, you know, Whitman at least had the benefit of, of achieving acclaim and in his lifetime, so many of these people, despite being very, very talented, maybe not as talented as Whitman, but being very, very talented, so many of them had to de- you know contend with obscurity and and um, you know just completely being ignored and rebuffed um, and so it made me you know the fact that these were the fact that I recognized that these were talented artists and I felt like they didn't give get their due I felt I felt like a sort of obligation to almost to revive them um, and Artemis Ward is the mm-hmm. figure in that context who I had a special. I, it's weird. I almost um, it'll it'll sound bizarre to say this, but but sometimes I'd be researching, and I would be researching an artist work, and I would sort of speak to him, and I say I say you know I'm, I'm I, I I understand uh, you know, the, you're you're a restless ghost. I can feel it, and I'm, I I say I will do my best. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it worked. I, you kind of made me fall in love with him a little bit, so it was very you were successful. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. He's, he's yeah. a he's a figure that, that, that deserves that deserves love. I think one of the reasons I was drawn to him was, was you know he was he was a comedian. And one of the things I loved is, is, you know, I find comedy, comedy ages so poorly that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I personally, you know, I have people that are 20 years older, you got to watch the honeymooners. And I watch them like, this isn't even, I can't even, smile. I can't even pretend to smile. This is not funny. <laughs> Artemis Ford, man, he must have been funny. He must have been funny beyond funny in his day because 
here it is, you know, 150 years later, and I find him funny. <laughs> you know, he's not, he seems a little old-fashioned. That's mm-hmm. not a surprise to me. But the wonderful thing is, you know, I was able to go back and read accounts of his kind, and you can really kind of picture his, one of the wonderful things was he was such a revolutionary humorist as really America's first stand-up comedian, um, that there was a lot of, you know, there's a lot of documentation of his routine, um, documentation of literally people reproducing jokes, but also people reproducing his, his mannerisms and his and the audience reaction and so forth. And man, what shines through um, is, is, you know, he, he was, he still seems, fun. not only does he still seem funny, but I'll be watching um, a modern comedian or a comedic actress, you know, I'll see what feel like, like the distant echoes of Artemis Ward traveling through, you know, a certain comedian's mannerisms or behavior. And so, so um, yeah, so I, I fell in love with Artemis Ward. <laughs> I think a lot of your readers will as well. <laughs> uh, do you have any idea who you're going to be writing about next? You know what? I'm, I'm in that phase. I have a very long list right now, of, of, as I described earlier. Sadly, I'm still in the idea generation and dismissal phase. Mm-hmm. I've, I've had a huge number of ideas I've entertained, most of them half-baked or strange or undocumentable. But, um, you know, it's... Uh, I'm trying to do something at least this time that I haven't always done in the past, which is trying to sort of embrace the process itself mm-hmm. and just, you know, because it's, it's as, as biographers know, as writers know, there's something you know, that's terrible. I always think it's kind of a crazy when you're writing a book, you're desperate to get it done. Then when you get the book done, you're desperate to find a next subject. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to be a little more sanguine about the, the, the sort of the, um, the open endedness of the idea searching process yeah. and just you know at the end of this you know I, I've written I've written four books so unlike my, my first book when I was done I was like well I ever write another book I'm like I'll write another book and maybe it'll be a couple years before I find something but in some ways I almost feel like I need to to actually integrate this process of, of, of searching mm-hmm. I think this is part of the process and you really want to of course search carefully because once you commit, you have to live with these people. Yeah, because <laughs> I get to live with these people. You have to. So, so yeah, there's something to be said for for you sort of taking time and also just sort of letting it happen in an organic way, sort of finding your way to mm-hmm. finding your way to a subject that'll you know that'll, that'll be you know that'll be um, right for you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much That's for right. talking with us today. Always oh, my pleasure. I enjoy talking with you. I've been talking today with Justin Martin about his new book, Rebel Souls, which is now out and available in hardback. I'm Olay Neaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.